Folletta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Folletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to Ferletta Investigates podcast. And uh, today is, a, a, I guess, a first for us in a very unique situation uh, because we've always brought in law enforcement uh, to tell that side of the story. Uh, today, we have a special guest who's going to tell another side of the story, someone who was actually involved in the operations of drug trafficking. Um, and so before we get to him, let me introduce our first guest, who was the DEA agent, uh, Eric Kolobinski, who actually arrested the person that we're going to be speaking with, Luis Navia. And Eric, as I, as I do on my traditional monologue, I always ask this question. Um, and, and usually I get the same answer from, from most everybody, uh, that, that DEA uh, traditionally has gone on herald. In, in a lot of sense, and along with the agents, never really getting the true recognition that they deserve fighting this, what we all refer to as the war on drugs and, and all the uh, issues that go along with it. So would you would, would agree with that, Eric? Absolutely, Larry. Um, it's kind of interesting, too, because when you consider that most of us are pretty strong type A personalities, uh, yet kind of, I guess, due to the nature of the job that we did, um, you, uh, you know, you don't seek recognition because a lot of us work undercover or we're at least maintain some sort of covert status on surveillances and, and during our investigations. So yeah, it is kind of interesting, kind of a irony there, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So Eric, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about your career, where you started out. I know, uh, you were a local law enforcement officer. You started in Durham, uh, North Carolina. So why don't you take us uh, a little bit, uh, some steps on your career? Okay. Yeah. As you said, I started with uh, Durham in 1979. At the time, we were public safety. So I was cross-trained to both police and fire. And for my first three years, uh, I functioned uniform patrol, which also you had uh, fire duties as well. And sometimes I even uh, drove the fire truck. And uh, about three years into that, I uh, was selected to uh, become part of the vice and narcotics unit there in Durham. And I spent five years doing that. Then in 1987, I uh, took a job with uh, U.S. Customs as a special agent with them. Spent a year down on the border in Laredo, Texas, and then uh, got a transfer to Wilmington, North Carolina. And it was when I was in Wilmington working with DEA there that the uh, resident agent in charge of the Wilmington office, Mike Grimes, uh, kind of courted me and, and uh, got me to come on over to DEA. So I uh, switched over to DEA in 91. 
first stationed in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, good part of that time in Atlanta, I was on the, the mobile enforcement team where we went around the southeast targeting um, drug organizations that had a nexus to violence um, for federal prosecution. And then in 1998, I went to Barranquilla, was transferred to Barranquilla, Colombia, uh, and was there uh, till April of 2001, where I came back to Tampa and became part of uh, Operation Panama Express, which is a maritime uh, intelligence-driven interdiction. Uh, it's now, a, I guess, a strike force, a federal strike force. And then in uh, December of 2007, I retired and uh, stayed here in the Tampa, Florida area and currently working as a private investigator. Okay. Well, during the course of, uh, of your career, uh, I know that uh, you were working some cases with U.S. Customs at the time, and uh, there was a particular individual uh, that there was an arrest warrant out for, and uh, this individual uh, was part of this part of the, I guess, the transportation system for the both the Medellin and Cali cartels. So you tell us a little bit about that and then how you came to meet uh, Luis Navia. There was, um, there was a case in our office. I was not the case agent, but it was uh, Operation Journey, and it was targeting the, um, the Mayisos. Uh, the twins, uh, Victor and Miguel Mejia, um, major, major uh, traffickers there in Colombia at the time. And I was asked to go over to Venezuela and assist in a surveillance over there because they had uh, gotten information based on a wiretap there in Colombia that um, a big deal was getting ready to go down in Venezuela. They're exporting a ton of coke, tons of coke over to Europe. And so my role in that particular time was to uh, go over there with this customs agent out of Houston, and we were uh, uh, operating a trigger fish, which is a device that um, helps uh, locate individuals via their cell phones. The targets the triangulates the cell phone signals and gives us location. Um, so that was my role at the time. That's how I ended up over there in Venezuela, Caracas, to be exact. Right, and at that point, uh, I guess Mr. Navi was identified in this organization, and at some point in time, you uh, you came to arrest him. Correct. Um, actually, interesting. At the time, we didn't know who he was. Um, just saw this individual in the middle of some meetings and, uh, thanks to some good forensic work, they picked up uh, a glass that he had used at one of the meetings, got his fingerprints off of it and was identified that way. And there happened to be an outstanding warrant out of the, uh, Southern District of Florida for a load that he had brought in through the Bahamas and a customs agent by the name of Bob Harley, uh, was the agent who uh, whose case it was, and I contacted him. We spoke, and uh, so now we knew that uh, this unknown individual was actually a gentleman by the name of Louis Navia, a U.S. citizen. Okay, and then you guys subsequently identified him, and then you arrested him. and, and Tell us a little bit about the arrest. 
Well, um, when you're working in a foreign country, um, you really, you know, you're there more in the role of an advisor and, um, you know, and and, and, uh, help helping you know host country with their investigations as well as getting them to support the US investigations. So we could not actually participate in the arrest. Um, so they, they picked up Lewis in a mall and took him to their um, to their I guess police headquarters there. And at some point um, in this whole process, they brought him out to us, stuck him in the back of uh, our I believe it was our suburban. And uh, that's when we first uh, first met and got to talk to him. Um, and um, after some coercion, um, when I say coercion, just uh, verbal battle back and forth and denials on his part, he finally admitted to who he was. Um, and subsequently, we brought him back to the U.S. Okay. And when you when you brought him back to the U.S., I take it that... Eventually, he took a guilty plea at some point in time and began to cooperate with the government. That is correct. He, um, uh, it's it's very beneficial. Uh, obviously, in, in exchange for a reduced sentence, he did begin to cooperate with the government and uh, helped us out on quite a few things. So basically, he helped expose the transportation system being used by the cartels. Yes, that and uh, he had he had a lot of just good general intel. Uh, he'd been operating in the business for uh, I don't know twenty five years or so, so he he knew a lot of the major players and um, knew a lot about you know how much uh, cocaine had been moved by the different organizations and that sort of thing, and, and uh, cooperated along those lines. Okay, all right. So I I want to welcome. Uh, Louis Navia to the show. And Louis, we appreciate you coming on. Um, and I know that uh, we spoke earlier and uh, to talk about how of important role that you actually played in a major transportation for the cartels. So Louis, but before we go uh, a little bit further, tell us about your background and about your education level. Well, thank you, Larry, for having me on. It's a pleasure talking to you and Eric. Um, Well, you know, I think I had a normal childhood. You know, I came to this country with my parents in uh, 1960. I was very young. I went to kindergarten. I went to, you know, elementary school uh, on a really nice island, uh, Sea Biscayne, which was totally undeveloped back then. It was a great place to grow up, like Tom Sawyer riding your bikes, fishing, hunting, uh, skin diving, you know, beautiful childhood. I went to the uh, local elementary school. Then I went to a very good uh, Jesuit prep school here in Miami. I got a great education. I ended up being accepted to uh, University of Miami and Georgetown University, which I attended both schools. But I was not a very mature, structured individual as far as studying was concerned. I could never see the correlation between a career or me as a career person and doing a nine to five. I just couldn't see that. I did want money. I was very turned on by money. Like, you know, I, I always 
played the drums. I enjoyed playing the drums. And from a young age, I enjoyed music. And like, like I've said before, you know, when I first heard the Beatles, what really impressed me about them wasn't their music, but the fact that they were like 18, 20 years old and they were millionaires. So <laughs> I was always very in tune with money. Like when I was going into high school here at the prep school in Miami, you know, I would sell sandwiches under the table and bring home seven, eight dollars, ten dollars every day for a kid that's 12 years old in school. That was going back in 1965, uh, 67, 68. So I was always focused on money. Um, so I went to Georgetown. That's when I first did a little dealing. You know, I figured, you know, I would bring up some ounces from Miami and sell them in Georgetown. That goes to prove I wasn't really, you know, concentrating on being an accountant, a lawyer. I wasn't really into school, even at the college level. And being accepted into Georgetown, which is an, an accomplishment, you know, my mind was elsewhere, unfortunately, unfortunately. Um, well, let me ask you this now. So... Anyways, you're you're dabbling, I guess, in in the the drug business, so to speak, um, and you end up meeting a girl who actually eventually, I think, introduced you to some of the uh, the major players uh, in the cocaine trade. Yes, I came back to Miami and I started working at a radio station and um, going to to school at the same time. My girlfriend at the time gives me a birthday party because I had just gotten back from Ecuador. That's, that's a whole other story. It's in the book, The FM Scam. But I come back from Ecuador and she gives me a birthday party and, you know, I'm at the birthday party and uh, in walks this, you know, exotic looking girl, all decked out, you know, older than I was. I was 23. She was already 30. And we, our eyes lock onto each other and uh, it's like instant lust or instant attraction. So we start talking and she came with somebody else and I was there with my girlfriend. She was giving me the birthday party, but suddenly uh, we really liked each other and we said to each other, what are we doing here? Let's go. So we hopped in her car and left to her apartment here on Brickell Avenue and that was it. You know, from then on, you know, we, we stayed together for about a year, year and a half, and she was a very rich lady. And she asked me to go to San Francisco, and I said yes. And, you know, I thought we were going on, on a regular jet, airplane. Turns out we went, you know, private in a Learjet and we went to San Francisco. And suddenly I see all this money coming in, and it's from a load that she had taken out there a month ago. And she was working big. She was working hundreds of kilos at a time. That's a lot back in 1979, 100, 200 kilos a month, especially when they're selling at 65,000. So the first time I ever saw any money was six and a half million dollars. So she told me at first it was emeralds. Then I, she told me it was Coke. And she asked me, listen, you know, I don't want you to, you don't have to get involved if you don't want to. And I said, no, no, are you kidding? This is better than rock and roll. I'm in. She was a little hesitant because I was very young and she was hanging out with a very tough crowd, probably the most dangerous crowd around at the time. And uh, they were working directly with the Medellin cartel. But 
this particular person that was she was working with was uh, something beyond the Medellin cartel. He was uh, a bandido before Pablo was. He was very, very feared individual. This was just not a, a cocaine uh, contrabandista or businessman. He was the real thing. He was a bad guy to the bone. This guy wasn't just a guy that was doing this cocaine thing because there was money involved. He was a bandido from years ago, from the early days of Medellin. He was a policeman in Medellin, and he was known to have killed many, many policemen in Colombia. That's why he got his name, Poli. You're, you're talking a completely different breed of individual. They were very, very scared of, of us or of him. So that was my start. Okay, so that's how you got started. You were introduced by this young lady, and then uh, things started happening for you within uh, within the organization. And then tell us how you uh, who you met in, in in terms of with credibility, where you could actually now become entrenched with the uh, with the groups. Well. Uh, this lady's brother-in-law happened to be one of the original West Coast big-time smugglers. They used to smuggle the tie stick, the hash. They used to put together these huge hash operations from Lebanon, um, operations from Thailand. They were re really organized major pot group out of um, California. They were older than we were. But they they were involved since the late sixties, let's say early seventies, and these people had a lot of money. And um, you know, we were she she was in California, and she says to them, "Listen, I'm involved with some people that have some cocaine, huh? and they would you like to move some?" And they said, "You know, we really stay away from that, but seeing as that is how you're involved, yeah, we'll take a couple kilos." And the couple kilos, their first order turned out to be a hundred kilos. Like, like nothing. They ordered a hundred kilos, like, like nothing. We, we were shocked. A lot of money. So when we started working this connection, that was golden. So the Medellin cartel protected us like crazy because they didn't have other customers like that, that would buy a hundred, 200 kilos every month. That's a lot of money going down South. So because of our good connections, we rose very rapidly and our goodwill went through the sky. So everybody wanted to work with us. That's when we were working with um, the whole Medellin cartel, the, the higher echelons, the, the Ochoas, eh, Negro Galliano, eh, Pablo Correa, all these uh, major players of the Medellin cartel. And um, we, we did that, I did that for a long, after I broke up with, with Bia, we did that for a, long, for a while into the mid 80s, uh, transporting from Miami to California. Then I bought my first aircraft, which was a, a Merlin. I used to park it at Burbank, California. And then I started doing smuggles, you know, sending the plane down to Colombia, loading it up, landing it in Mexico, and then having the Mexicans cross the merchandise over. That was, you know, mid 80s. Uh, when nobody was working the Mexican, uh, not, as, not as much as they are now. We were working with the guys from the Guadalajara cartel, 
And then that just grew and grew. And like any business, you know, you grow it, you, you're focused on it and you work hard and you invest in it and it grows like any other business. So from moving stuff from Miami to California, now I was bringing stuff in from Colombia to the United States. What, what were you guys, how were you guys able to avoid uh, detection from the authorities in, in the terms when you started, you know, flying loads uh, from, uh, let's say, Colombia into Mexico, or was it because of the Mexico Mexican government was implicit in the in the drug trade? You know, we always worked with professionals. You have to have e- equality on both ends. You cannot be working with the Medellin cartel, Pablo. Negro Galeano, Pablo Correa, eh, Mono Lopera, these high, high, high level people working 500, 700, 1,000 kilo loads back in the 80s, which that was a lot back then. And on the other end, have some idiots. No, we had very high level professional people in Mexico receiving the merchandise, crossing it. And we had very high level people receiving it in the United States, distributing and selling. So all along the chain, we maintained a high level of professionals. We didn't deal with any, you know, uh, people that had just started on with no experience. I mean, the people we worked with in Mexico, you know, were the at first the Guadalajara cartel with Caro Quintero and all those guys. And when we started working with the Arellanos and the Arellano, these guys are all, you know, if you watch Narcos Mexico, those are the guys who ran the coke business in uh, in Mexico at first. And then Miguel Felix, the Arellanos, El Chapo. Back when we worked with him, we didn't really know him as El Chapo. We knew him as El Rapido because he, he crossed the merchandise so rapidly. Before, right. we used to take a load into Mexico. It would take 30 days for the Mexicans to cross the border and give you the merchandise in L.A. When Chapo came into the picture, it was done in four days. That's why they called him El Rapido. And then we worked with Amado. All these characters, they're all high, high-level people in Mexico with high-level people in Colombia. There's no room for mistakes. You cannot right. screw up a 5,000-kilo load or a 2,000-kilo right. load, especially not back then with 2,000 kilos. You know, I had my own plane, I had a lot of lines, and they were all connected with the government. Did you ever meet any of these individuals face-to-face, or was it sort of an, an isolation thing where everybody understood, you know, who was doing the transporting, et cetera? No. On the Colombian end, I met everybody face-to-face. I never dealt with a broker because, you know, I was very much Colombian and my activities were in Colombia. I lived in Colombia. And from day one, I started working straight with the Medellin cartel, the major players, uh, Pablo, like I said, Pablo Correa, Galeano. Uh, later, I worked with Ivan Urdinola from the Northern Valley, Cali, and Monoendo from Cali. And the, all the major players of the Northern Valley cartel it was a one-on-one relationship of, of friends, almost as friends. I, you know, we were right. friends, and they knew me. I knew them for years. 
And then on the Mexican end, I had very, very close contacts with a few Mexican groups, and it was also one-on-one. And the contacts I had in Mexico were very high level. And if they weren't the highest levels, they were working directly with Amado. For example, I worked with Amado, but I never met Amado. I worked with the Arellano Felix, but I never met uh, Benjamin or Ramon. But the person I worked with was their compadre. So that was it. And in Mexico, I really, I let the Mexicans handle the Mexicans. You know, I didn't want to get too close there. I respected that. I let my Mexican connection, and, and he was directly connected to to the, the, the people that you know, ran the show. And same with the Gulf Cartel. The, my compadre in Mexico dr- dr- worked directly with Ociel and Garcia Abrego. Major, major, major players. Always. We never did anything half-assed. Right. Did you lose any loads uh, during your course of your operations uh, between Colombia and Mexico? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. We and, lost and how load, did you, not uh, too many, not uh, at all. Yeah, how did you justify to the groups about the loads being lost? You just tell them, listen, the, the load got lost. This is how it happened. Boom, boom, boom. And if you had to pay for it, you pay for it. And that's it. No problem. Once I lost the load, four and a half million dollars, it was a discrepancy, a gray area, this and that. I said, and then, you know, I really don't think the Mexicans did it on purpose. It was lost somewhere in San Diego. What am I going to do? Start a war, have these Colombians go after and whack all the Mexicans? No, I'll pay for it and we'll continue working because I didn't see that it was a, a stolen situation. It was just a, a screw up and it was a gray area who exactly screwed up. So I went ahead and paid the four and a half million dollars and continued working um, uh, twice. You know, I had to burn my plane to save the load, but the load is worth more than the plane. So I burnt the plane. That was $2 million. And then, you know, but the load made it across and then, you know, we bought it up. So I was always very business minded. You know, I never carried a gun. I'm not interested in that part of the game. I don't think it leads to better business. Right. Uh, other people handle that. If there is a major problem and it has to be dealt with, the office will deal with it. Uh, I don't. That's not my forte. That's not what I do. And even these guys in Colombia, they would say, we don't want you concentrating on collecting debts or getting involved in, in um, you know, right. killing people. That's not your forte. Concentrate on what makes money, which is what you're good at, logistics. And right. I said, you're right. You know, I'm not into that other stuff, and I don't know how to do that other stuff. You guys do that. So says, yeah, we have specialized departments that deal with that all the time. I says, I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let me ask so, you something. Were the, were the organizations that you were associated, me and the Mayin cartels, were they very structured or were they like a loose-knit organization? For example, you know, you have a guy like you in charge of transportation then you have your, you know, your distributors, wholesalers, money launderers, and things of that nature. So, how did that organization actually work? They were very structured. For example, like me, they had a few, obviously. 
transporting, that do transport. Once the merchandise gets to the United States, rarely do they want you to sell the merchandise you transported. And rarely did I do that. I didn't want to get involved in sales. My thing was transport. So I would hand it over to one of their distributors here in the States. And that distributor would hand it eventually to a salesperson. So I never did sales. I wasn't interested in sales. My thing was just from point A to point B, C or D. And they were very structured. You never kept, they never kept uh, cocaine where they kept the money. The, the, the guy that did the distribution never handled the money. Money people were money people. Usually, you know, just people that just did money. Um, and the distribution, the product people were the product people. The enforcers were the enforcers. You didn't have a salesman going out and doing his own enforcing or nothing like that. You know, there was it was very structured and very well thought out. And even, you know, within that top echelon power um, structure, you had, you know, you had Pablo, you had the Mexican, you had the Ochoas, and you had the associates. To all those people that were actually the money makers, like the Galeanos and the Moncadas, you, you had other people like me in Medellin and in Bogota. I usually ran my office out of Bogota. I had three offices in Bogota, and then I also had one in Cali when I worked with Cali for a while. But mine was a transportation office, you know, and then they had their collection offices also. So everything was very, very I know there was a situation that came up with you and uh, you were kidnapped and uh, I think you were kidnapped. I don't know. You mentioned something that you spent about 21 days. Tell us a little bit about uh, the kidnapping and and what took place. Well, it it wasn't a kidnapping, like in the sense of a kidnapping was just being held, but I was working with this gentleman and from Northern Valley cartel. He was probably the biggest player in Colombia at the time. After Pablo, he became very big. Um, and he did. He, he was one of the number one uh, players in the Northern Valley Cartel. And I worked with him. We did a lot of loads together. We had a nice friendship. We had a great business relationship. He was a marvelous guy. Uh, but one day, there was a, a comment. And... Uh, you know, there was a discrepancy in, in reference to that comment. They Somebody says that I was talking bad about him in Mexico, so on and so forth. So when I got back to Colombia after being in Mexico for a while in Cancun, one of my partners at the time in Santa Marta tells me, hey, so-and-so is really, really pissed at you, and I don't think you're going to make it out of this one. He sent for you. You know, the, the, the word is he's going to he's, he's sent for you. And uh, he's going to kill you. And I said, what? You know, he's my friend. What do you mean he sent for me? He doesn't need to send for me. He's my friend. I'll get on a plane right now and go see him. I said, I said, my, my friend told me, I said, just head the other direction. I said, just, you go to Paraguay or something. And I said, no, this guy's my friend. I, whatever I need to face, I'll face one-on-one with him. He's my friend. So I went to Cartago where, where he had his main, main office. 
and uh, I showed up and I said, listen, here I am, you know, whatever, whatever they're saying, it's BS. It's not true. I, re- I highly respect you. And uh, he said, yeah, that's fine. But, you know, things have gotten a little out of hand. And right now you're going to have to stay here for a while while this gets sorted out. So that's when I was held. You know, I was handcuffed to a bed for three days. It wasn't exactly. And then, and then I was put on a farm, had a nice swimming pool, a nice farm. And, but, you know, I was told, you're, out, you're, you're here. You're, we're going to let you relax. So this gets solved. Don't think you can go nowhere because we will shoot you. The order is not to kill you, but we will shoot you. We will shoot you in the leg. And believe me, we will have to remove that bullet. We have no doctors here and no anesthesia. So understand that we will shoot you. And then, you know, days went by and it's tough because you're sitting there for 21 days thinking about dying. About any day, the phone can ring and it's that phone call that's going to end your life. And you've got a, a wife that's seven months pregnant and this and that. It's, it's torture in that sense, you know, every day thinking this could be it things got solved and um you know we you know we were at peace with each other and uh, i went ahead and continued doing my business with other people he never put the word out for nobody to work with me because a guy of that power in colombia he could have said i'm letting him go but nobody worked with him and nobody would touch me with a 10-foot pole. He gave me free reign. He gave me free free reign as to continue my economic activity. And uh, he gave me that blessing. And, uh, you know, no, no harm ever came to my family, anything. It was, you know, he's a real gentleman. And to this day, you know, I still have high respects for him. And he's, he's very dear to my heart. He really is because it could have gone the other way. And I could have never seen my daughter being born. So I have to thank him for that always. So that was a misunderstanding about you saying something about him and somebody cleared that up for you? Look, family's a real, uh, let's use the B word. Family sometimes is a real pain, let's say. And there was somebody in, not my immediate family, but, you know, somewhat related family. Um, that I wanted to help out and I sent out to Cancun and sometimes the last thing you should do is a felony favor. I mm-hmm. did this person a favor and it turned out she's a she, uh, an older lady and she tried to take over my business and she figured the best way to start taking it over is just talk bad about Lewis and get this guy pissed off. She didn't understand that she could have gotten me killed. You know, I, I this could have ended up real bad. But in that world, there's certain rumors that don't go too far. The rumor about you working with another group, the rumor about you stealing, or the rumor about you going to bed with somebody's wife. And she, you know, said that I was finagling the books and talking bad about them. Obviously, finagling the books, these people have accountants, auditors. Even me, I had to have a secretary and accountant in my office. I couldn't just show up, you know, do a 3,000 kilo load 
with a little piece of paper with some numbers. I had to have a whole accounting of costs, cost per kilo, breakdown, transport. You know, so the accounting gets resolved really quick. If you steal, they'll know you stole immediately. Two and two is four real quick in that world. Mm-hmm. And but the part is that he, he was he, he was such a good person to me. He helped me so much get certain routes and certain transport situations, um, um, you know, built that he felt really bad that I would ever talk bad about him. And that's what really hurt him. And then he realized that that was also a lie. That right. that was not me. And I proved it to him. So he was my friend. Even though he was a very feared person to me, he was my friend. So in the transportation business, we'll call it, um, you were mostly using uh, some Maryland, I, I call them Maryland's, Marlins aircraft. And then eventually, did you increase the number of aircraft or did you use other means for transportation? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I had a Merlin, then I had uh, two Conquests. I had a Piper Navajo. And in the meantime, when I was using my planes but had other routes, I would rent. I rented Cheyenne 4s, Turbo Commanders. So at any time, we could have four, five, six planes going. And if I didn't have mine available, I would rent one from somebody else. You know, renting one of these planes is, you know, a million bucks a pop. You know, with pilots and, you know, it's, it's the whole thing, you know. And uh, I always had my own equipment. I didn't want to ask anybody for anything. You know, I had and I had my own, own offloading crews here in the Keys. I, I, I had my own Mexicans receiving the merchandise in Mexico. I had my own boats in Mexico receiving the uh, boat loads. Um, I had the boats receiving the airdrops off Cancun and Cozumel. We were airdropping. We were landing. We were airdropping in the Bahamas, uh, sending boats to Jamaica, to Belize, to Guatemala. Uh, we were all over the place. At any given time, we had you know five thousand kilos, you right. know, on route somewhere. So, how did you get into the transportation side now? you know, the cartels really expanding their wings, Mayin, and uh, you, you got into freight, freight liners, I think, and then some of the cocaine started being shipped to Europe. Yes, I was always business-minded, and I always wanted to build up my enterprise and go from, you know, distribution and to transport, uh, boats, planes. And then towards 1998, when a friend of mine transport business went down the tubes and I was approached by this other cartel to start taking over his routes and he was shipping from Panama to Europe. I said, you know, I think we're better off bringing the boats from Europe down to Brazil, picking up in Venezuela and then going out to the Atlantic. So Venezuela is on the Atlantic, you know, that. Right. Um, eastern tip of Venezuela next to Guyana. If you're already in the Atlantic, you know, three hours and you're in the middle of nowhere. And then avoid that hot zone between Panama and Venezuela. So we work the route backwards. Instead of Panama, Venezuela, and the Atlantic, I went backwards to Europe and back to Europe. I never hit the Caribbean. So 
they, we started to buy these freighters and I always said to myself, and I always told my partner back then, you know what, this is going to be our downfall. The paper trail is too much. We had companies in England, in Italy, and in Greece. We had freighters. We had the good crews that worked the freighters when we were just doing whatever, legal cargo. And we had to take off the good crews and put on the bad crews when we were going to do one of the coke trips, one of the coke runs. And I said, this paper trail of these boats is what's going to kill us. You know what? To transport 5,000 kilos from Venezuela to Europe, you don't need a freighter. You build a very nice, big, 100-foot open fisherman with three 1,200 caterpillars, and you put four islanders, four black guys from San Andreas, so then you can drop them off in Cape Verde Islands, and you take this boat, and nobody knows anything. There's no paper trails. You take the, the four guys with the 5,000 kilos, take it up off to the, the Spanish coast, have the Spanish pick them up, sink the boat, and then send the crew members back through Africa, through Cape Verde Island. That's it. End of story. No paper trail. You don't have 12, 15 crew members, payrolls, shipping offices in Greece. You got nothing. And then you just build these things. I was going to build them in Brazil. These are nice, very nice, 100-foot open fishermen. And just, they, come on, Columbus crossed the uh, the Atlantic. I think the Pinta, the Minta, and the Santa Maria, whatever they were called, they were probably 48 feet long, 60 feet long at the most. You know, look it up. I mean, it, it doesn't take much. To, you know, people are crossing the Atlantic in, in, in canoes. So imagine a super nice, you know, open fisherman, like a defender type, just longer, 100 foot, but 5,000 kilos, four crew members in your gun. So you were pretty financially stable, I guess, at this point because of the transportation uh, that you were able to do for the cartels. And I'm taking it that you're probably making millions of dollars in, in this uh, journey. And, uh, so if there's some loss or some uh, type of disruption, you're able to try to settle uh, any issues on your own. Is that right? Well, um, when you're talking five, at that point, we were doing 5,000 kilos and we had money invested in ships. And it's, you know, I mean, you don't want to lose 5,000 kilos. Sure. That's a hard bill to pay. But, you know, everybody thinks, you know, we weren't the owners of the merchandise. We were making money, but we were living large also. The big, big money is made by the owners of the merchandise. Those sure. are the guys who become billionaires. Right. And because we were at the level we were at, we were always, always living very large. You know, we lived in a hotel in Greece. Our hotel bills were like thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, you know, every three weeks, whatever. But yeah, we had money. We had money. We were not billionaires. And, um, you know, a lot of the money was always invested in the business, in the boats, in this and that, and then trips coming and going. And everybody had their stash that, you know, you never want to touch. Right. 
but uh, the the main the, the major major money was uh, back home in Colombia, the owners of the merchandise, and uh, you know uh, I was planning to go back to Europe and put together a coffee deal, and that was fifty million dollars, and we were going to get financing from Swiss banks for another fifty million, and we wanted to corner the coffee market in Central America. So I I always had legal projects also going. But, you know, that never happened. But, you know, I had always legal businesses also while I was working. I had coffee businesses, sugar businesses. Right. And and most of the businesses were, were basically in Colombia and not too many in the U.S.? No, my business is uh, n- nothing in the U.S. I sold my sugar interests in the, in the U.S. I had my, uh, you know, packing operation in Aruba macadamia farm in costa rica coffee operation in mexico latex operation in mexico um yeah mostly we're out of the u.s out of the u.s when i left the u.s in 87 88 i was never going to come back i sold everything i had here okay so it's at some point in time i i know that when we were having some of the discussions uh, and, and I know we could probably talk to you for hours or days on what you were involved with. Just to cover one little thing that we did talk about, you mentioned you met the uh, some uh, Italian mobsters in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, they were part of the Lucchese crime family. So tell us a little bit about that, Louis, and then we're going to go into a couple other things, and then we're going to uh, move on from there. You know, that's, that's a whole different breed. And Colombians are bad. Uh, every country has its bad and its good. Italians are a delicate bunch. You don't want to mess with Italians. They, they you know, they, they are uh, you know, a nasty group. Great people, great fun, uh, fantastic. You know, restaurant outings, New York, New Jersey, the casinos, the whole thing. They're a tough group. They'll eat you for breakfast. And I always knew it. The person that introduced me to him always told me, never let your guard down with these people. They'll eat you for breakfast. And money, forget about it. Money to them is king. Don't even, you know, they'll kill you for money. We did very nice business with them. They knew who I worked with. And like they say, wolf doesn't eat wolf. Wolf will eat dog, but wolf does not eat wolf. So they knew, you know, they could only go so far with me because there was people behind me that would not take lightly to any mishandling of uh, situations. So we worked fantastically. And then one day, somehow, my friend, the guy that introduced me to him, also Italian from New Jersey, was selling some merchandise for him. And he got popped. And they thought that he was going to turn state's evidence. And they weren't too happy about that. But then in the discovery, of the whole thing of how he got popped, they realized that he was selling at 16 and telling them that he was selling at 13. So that, that's where he really got nailed because money, you know, money to them, you know, there's there's no fooling around with money. Sure enough, they got him one night, one day. They called him to a meeting. One of them whacked him over the head with an ashtray. They just killed him right there. They just, you know, killed him with uh, bats or... Uh, whatever they they clobbered him to death 
put them in a cement and a 55-gallon drum and dumped them in a river in Hialeah. At that point, that was 1988, I was leaving the Columbia. And I hadn't heard from him for two weeks. And I, I knew he was dead. He had to be dead. His wife was calling me. I mean, he had to be dead. And I was going to Columbia. And yet, years later, some of his old associates got popped with 2,000 kilos, I believe, somewhere in Louisiana. And some of those guys turned state's evidence and they gave up the body. They said, okay, for, you know, that's the deal they cut. They gave up where they had dumped Joey's body. And then uh, they found the body and that was my friend. Yeah, so that's a vicious crew. You don't want to mess with the Italians and you don't want to mess with the Russians either. <laughs> right. I know there's a lot of different groups that you dealt with, but uh, so let's kind of sum this up a little bit because uh, based on our conversations, you believe that through your transportation with the cartels and, you know, going from uh, Colombia to Mexico to Europe and to the U.S., that uh, somewhere about 200 tons of cocaine had come through uh, your transportation business. Is that right? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Okay, and then eventually um, you get to meet uh, uh, Eric at some point in time, and uh, as they say, all good things must come to an end. So tell us uh, what happened when you met Eric and uh, and company. Well, like Eric said, I, I was taking a shave at a barber shop, and suddenly these Venezuelans they say, "Quieto, Guardia Nacional," you know, National Guard you're under suspicion of narco trafficking. You know, I had this barber with a straight edge razor, you know, shaving me and his hand was shaking and I thought he was going to cut my juggler vein. So I said, Hey, whoa, 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 everybody relax. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a Mexican citizen. There's gotta be some kind of mistake. Well, they knew I wasn't a Mexican citizen, but I was putting on the Mexican accent. So right. on and so forth. Bom, bom, bom. So they take me and there's the good cop, bad cop, Colombian cop, good cop, Venezuelan cop, bad cop. The Venezuelan cop was telling me, we're going to cut you up with little pieces with a surgical knife, this and that. They took me into a police station in Maracaibo that had these uh, cinder block walls painted in white and a steel chair bolted to the center of the room. And there was still blood on the walls and all this. They were telling me all this. Somehow or the other, I knew this wasn't going to happen. This wasn't going to play out that like that. I don't know. I just had that gut feeling. They wanted to know where the coke was and where the money was and where George was. And I kept saying I was a Mexican. I knew nothing. So I was sitting in the back of a Suburban. And this is after a day. You know, we had already slept at a police station one night. and bam, bam, bam. I was sitting in, in the back of the Suburban, Venezuelan, in the driver's seat, Colombian, in, in the passenger seat. And they keep telling me about this and that. And then suddenly I look to my right and I see this pair of long white legs. You know, the knees came up to almost, I was in a suburban and he was in shorts. And I see these long white legs, you know, out the window. And that's when I realized we're screwed. This is it. The Americans are here. I knew this guy was for sure an American DEA because he was wearing these shorts and a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> Suddenly the door opened and it's Eric Kopinski. I, I used to call him Eric Kopinski. I never knew it was Kobinski. And this guy, um, 
looks like an American movie star, uh, Sam uh, Elliott. Real good looking guy. As I <laughs> this guy must have done really well with the girls in Colombia. <laughs> Real good looking guy, tall guy in these shorts and these sandals, a Hawaiian shirt. And I said, I'm screwed. This is it. I'm going to America. <laughs> And sure enough, he said, Mr. Navia, how are you? I said, listen, you got the wrong guy. I'm Mr. Novoa from Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> I kept giving him this Mexican thing. And then he says, oh, hold on. Let's clarify this. So he gives me the phone and says, somebody wants to talk to you. So on the other line, hey, Mr. Navia, how are you? This is Bob Hardy. You know, I don't know if you don't know me, but I've been to your house on Key Biscayne and I've talked to your family. And I go, you know, kept going with the Mexican thing until, you know, Bob said, listen, just do, do what the gentleman next to you says. Make it easy on yourself because you're not going anywhere. You're coming back home and you're just going to make things tougher on yourself. So we know who you are. You are not Mexican. You went to this high school. You went to Georgetown University. Bah, 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 bah. I was looking for you in Panama. I was looking for you in Mexico. Bah, 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 boom. And then I finally said to Eric, Eric, you know, yeah, my name is Luis Navia. A buenas tardes. And then, you know, in life, who, who you end up with? And I was very fortunate to end up in good hands. Hey, if I, if I can just interject, as I recall, Luis, um, as you kept denying that you were uh, who you are, um, I said, if that's the case, then I guess got don't have a choice but to turn you back over to the Venezuelans. And I think that had something to do with you deciding that uh, you wanted to come back to the States. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, you know, actually it was mixed feelings because, you know, I had spoken to Yvonne. And uh, when all this was happening, I said to Yvonne, Yvonne, maybe we should stay here in, in jail in Venezuela. And buy our way out because we we, we we were already offering like half a million, then a million to the Colombian and to the Venezuelan. And, uh, you know, that wasn't going much. And um, then I told Yvonne, look, these guys aren't taking it. But once they put us in jail, we can work it out. And, uh, you know, we, we, we can buy our way out. And Yvonne said, Louis, no, that's and he didn't know me as Louis. He knew me as Julio. Says, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is probably they're going to kill us in here. They're going to kill us here in Venezuela. You know, even though we got money, you know, at this point, this has gotten so out of control. We have just lost 25,000 kilos that probably the, the quickest decision that's going to come down is for us to get whacked. I go, what? You mean we're working for these people and they're going to whack us? Are you crazy? Well, in that case, you know, maybe we're better off going to the States. And that's, you know, when Eric came in and this and that, and I said, you know what? It's over. It's over. The U.S. is involved. I'm not, you know, if I stay in prison in Venezuela, it's going to be terrible. And sooner or later, I'm going to come back to the States. You know, nobody's going to not, you know, you know, the eagle's going to catch you. And once they grab you, you're, it's over. And, and that's it. I think I made a very good decision. Thank God, you know, I had all my wits about me and I was enlightened because some people make a wrong decision and that's the one decision that's going to hurt you forever. Yeah. So I was very fortunate things played out like that. 
Yeah, and no doubt that you met the you met the right uh, you met the right agents um, who uh, worked with you and and uh, got things worked out for you. You did spend some time in in federal prison. So um, we're going to conclude our our uh, interview. I appreciate uh, Eric and Louis coming on and tell us a little bit of your story. I know we could go on uh, for much longer, but I did want to mention that. Uh, that Lewis has a book already out. It, I believe it's in Australia and it's in England. It's called Pure Narco. And I believe in November uh, this coming year, it's going to be out in the U.S. That is true. Pure Narco. And it's available now via Amazon. You can pre-order it through Amazon. And we're looking forward to uh, all the adventures involved. Again, I want to thank both of you. Uh, for uh, doing this show. Um, I know I was, uh, I didn't know anything about you, Lewis, and really not much about Eric as well until uh, the uh, the author of the book, Jesse Fink, had uh, reached out to me. And uh, I was glad that he did. And I'm glad that both of you uh, came on to the show. So thank you again and uh, have a great day. All right. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.